Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Welcome to the show, Stephen Lewis Simpson. The film is called uh, Neither Wolf Nor Dog. It is a story, it follows a white author who gets sucked into the heart of contemporary Native American life in the sparse lands of the Dakotas by a 95-year-old Lakota elder and his sidekick. Neither Wolf Nor Dog takes audiences on a deeply moving trip through the contemporary life of these Native Americans. It uses humor, it uses a lot of deeply felt emotions and the power of story to in this film neither wolf nor dog and with that i'd like to introduce the director of that film and that would be stephen lewis simpson thanks so much for having me oh thank you for being here um well congratulations on the film first uh, i thought you did a wonderful job here and thank I, you I, where did the story come from well, it's an adaptation of a novel uh, written by Kent Nerver, and it came out in the mid-90s. And, um, I mean, essentially, Kent had spent uh, a, a time working, particularly on Red Lake Indian Reservation um, in Minnesota, working with some Ojibwe youth distilling down uh, some elders' stories into a book. And then from that, he got to know particularly one noted elder, um, and kept getting all this extraordinary information from him and perspective uh, on the world. And he kind of thought, well, how do I create a work that can pull all that together in a way that really engages a reader? And, you know, the native way is teaching through story. And so he came up with this road trip and we wrote that into a novel. And um, and this movie is the adaptation of that. Uh, in approaching... The, uh, the the main character, the the man whose whose life we we follow, uh, Dan Bald Eagle. Um, what was what was that like? How would how did he, how receptive was he initially uh, about the idea of participating in a narrative film um, about basically about his life, but certainly about the life of his community. Well, the, I mean, it was a much-loved character in the novel um, and the two subsequent novels. And so when, I, when it was a case of finding out who was the perfect person to play it, um, you know, it was I, I searched sort of high and low trying to find the perfect person, and I finally found Dave. And it couldn't have been more perfect. I mean, he was perfect personally in every way imaginable. But even more spectacular than that, um, he was from literally the heart of where the story takes place. You know, it's a, a film like this, you you know, you normally go in and you, theoretically, you would go, well, who's the best Native actor for the job? But personally, I prefer going even deeper than that and trying to find someone, you know, who's close to the nation that's being depicted in it. And we couldn't have gotten, I mean, he was even closer to the events depicted in the film than the character he was playing. Mm -hmm. That's how extraordinary it was. And so when I spoke to him about it, uh, he immediately jumped on board. There was no hesitation. And uh, but that was him. I mean, he was somebody that loved adventure and um, and had an, the most extraordinary life because of it. And um, but it was a, it was sort of an interesting thing for narrative feature because we got to a point when filming it where where the truth coming out between the characters were getting so deep that some of the things that were in the novel and the script 
towards the climax of the film just didn't seem to be where we were heading. It, it was just such a, a raw honesty about it. And so um, the final scene I filmed between Christopher Sweeney, who played Nurburn, and, and Dave, who played Dan, I threw away the script and the novel, and we had um, Dave improvise the whole scene, and he spoke from a very, very deep place. And it was set at Wounded Knee, and Dave's, David had ancestors there tied up into the massacre. And um, what came out of it was the most powerful scene imaginable. And at the end of it, he said to Christopher Sweeney, I've been holding that in for 95 years. And, you know, that's, it's a fascinating thing how, you know, it, in that scene, it's not even documentary. It's, it's sort of, you know, you slip from fiction into literally feeling like you're standing there with this man who is going through one of the most powerful moments of his life, pouring something out of his heart from a very, very deep place. And that's a, a huge part of why the film has been such a, a hit with the audience. It's because he is so deeply moving them in the film. Well, that, that is interesting, because when I was watching the film, uh, the, it's, it's a road trip film. There is a lot of uh, backstory. There's a lot of development of the characters. Uh, there's a lot of back and forth between Kent and uh, Dan and, um, I've, uh, and David. Grover. Grover, yeah. Thank yeah. you, Grover. And, uh, and so, but that, that last 20 minutes or so, and I think that's basically what you just described, it, yeah. The film really takes on a, a yeah another gear another level, and as you're telling me the the actual events, it it, it certainly comes across in the film. I it's it's a, it's a it's a you know it's an interesting and in, in, and an entertaining film prior to that, but it really kicks into a whole other gear in that last fifteen twenty minutes, and so. Uh, that's exactly wow. That's uh, a great story, and I, I think it's it's a such a powerful part of the f- film. And it's a your uh, your description. I think is very apt. It is. It, it's go ahead. You know, it's a, it's a funny thing because you know, I mean, I've spent a very you know well over eight years making this film, and in a way, I'm kind of disconnected from it in a way because for me, it's Dave's film, and it's Dave's legacy, uh, mostly about that section at the end of the film and in a you know it's a strange thing because you know for me I, I, there's a part of me which is kind of separates it to the point where if if people get through the film to get to that point and experience that I, it's almost like i don't care whether they like the film or not they experience something historic something important something far 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 bigger than the movie yeah. or, or any movie uh this is a cultural moment uh, Dave is one of the, or was one of the very last of a particular generation. Um, I mean, you know, his grandfather, who TP, he was born in in 1919. Uh, his grandfather was one of the key participants at the Battle of the, Little, of the Little Bighorn, which, you know, wounded the the massacre was considered by many to be the Seventh Cavalry's retaliation from for their predecessors being wiped out at the, the Little Bighorn, and so he was so at the root of this and. Um, and so, you know, the, the audience reaction to the whole film has been wonderful, um, but to me, that scene just makes it a bigger thing entirely. And, um, and it's interesting because one of the challenges making a film like this is, you know, you have a, an elder who is trying to teach the, uh, the author to listen in a different way, to quieten himself down, to, you know, be able to be out in nature and learn its lesson just by paying attention. And... The film had to replicate that, 
You know, we had to, you know, I had to create a tone, a pace, a rhythm that forced the audience to settle in in a different way. And part of the reason why I keep it in theaters for so long is um, because that it works communally and it works on a big screen in a way that it doesn't work on a small screen. Mm. And when you get, I mean, we keep hearing of amazing dialogues taking place in, you know, the foyer of cinemas uh, after showings, uh, you know, of people sticking around and having these conversations and often cross-cultural between natives and non-natives. And, you know, to me, that's too precious a thing to squander on just having it on video on demand and, and that sort of thing. I do want to talk about how you've marketed this film, how you, in, in your your background in independent filmmaking, but I want to go back and sort of reset the expectations in, in, about the film, um, because the the film is, in in a lot of ways, it's telling a story, a particular story. It's is, I don't know that I did a great job of describing how... Uh, this the, the book that was put together, and then Kent goes back based on uh, on a phone call he gets from the daughter or granddaughter, I should say, of Dave or David, and from there it's him being Kent is being initiated into Indian culture in a way that is at times frustrating for him, at, at times uh, seems almost pointless, and he doesn't know why he's being <clears throat> sort of subjected to. Uh, a kind of abuse in a way, but it also in a, in, in a way it is to reset his uh, compass, in, internal compass, and to understanding mm-hmm. exactly the connection that the, that the mm-hmm. Native Americans have for the land and the respect and, and, and all of the things that come with it. And so that's part of this process. And, and so it is at times frustrating. Uh, so it, and you, you wonder where you're going when the film, but then as it moves along and as you get further and further into the story and understanding what's happening we are introduced to more people uh more people from the community extended family so we're getting a richer and fuller portrayal of life on a reservation and how the economic deprivation and all of the things that native americans continue for the most part to be paying for we have the, we have the that strata of the Native Americans in gambling. Who those tribes are? For, that's a whole other movie. Uh, how they're doing? But there's but I think the vast majority of Native Americans in this country are still uh, at the, are suffering tremendously from economic inequality. And uh, so that's I think I'm just I'm a lot to, I'm going on about this, but I want people to understand it. But it's in this last part of the film where you get an unvarnished uh, monologue looking almost right into the camera to tell us things that we have heard but I don't think we actually feel. And yeah. and so that's what makes that part of the film so remarkable and so raw and so indelibly etched in in your mind once you've seen it. Is that And, a- and it's been fascinating seeing what people particularly in different areas draw out of it. Um yeah. you know and I've been sort of really kind of pleasantly surprised at how broad the audience has been because I always knew that it had a particular audience and they would be engrossed by it and also that understood a lot of, there's a lot of very subtle interplay in there. Um, but I've been shocked at how much the humor comes across in a in a big audience in many places. I mean, even just showing it in Germany with subtitles, I was shocked at how often people were laughing at jokes that uh, they shouldn't be able to understand mm-hmm. um, because it was very subtle Lakota humor. Um, but they were so connecting with the characters 
and and finding the humor together. I've never, you know, pretty much never hear anyone sitting watching it alone, chuckling at any point. Whereas, you know, there are a few big laughs in a in a cinema, which is which is really wonderful. I mean, that's the thing you don't discover what you have with a film really until you you put it in a theater. Yeah. I want to remind our listeners that we're speaking with director of the new film Neither Wolf Nor Dog, director Stephen Lewis Simpson. It is coming out here in theaters today in in Cali- Southern California, and I have lost my notes. It, it's opening where here in Los Angeles? Uh, today it's at the opening for a week at the Pasadena Playhouse 7, and then from next Friday the uh, in Encino at the Town Center 5. I apologize. I had that, and I just couldn't find it. Thank you so much for letting our audience know. Are you in town for any Q&As? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, the 7 o'clock tonight and uh, the 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. tomorrow, which will also include Chris Sweeney. And then one ten on Sunday. Is that all at Very, one? various times for everyone. Is that at the same location? Is that at the? Uh, That's all at the Playhouse in place. Pasadena. Yeah. Okay. Pasadena, Playhouse Seven. Yeah. It's a great theater complex. Uh, the Pasadena Playhouse Theater. It's right mm-hmm. there in Colorado. So uh, uh, you should check it out. Uh, I, there's another part of this. Uh, the story of the film. It's it's the film itself, and then there's the story of the film. And how you have been very creative uh, throughout your career as a, f- a filmmaker, but certainly with this one in terms of marketing the film. Tell us a little bit about, uh, first of all, w- the website for people who are interested in in finding out more about the film. Well, neither wolf nor dog dot com, or um, you'll find a, a Facebook page for the film. It's more interactive, and people can reach out to us. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was a case of starting out, and you know, the industry just pays no attention to independent films pretty much across the board very rare exceptions, you know, 5,000 submissions or something to Sundance every year is kind of what they say. And, you know, 99 point however many percent of them will never be heard of. And uh, I didn't want to be in that scenario. So, um, and I also saw how badly distributed some of the ones that were released did. I mean, uh, uh, there's a, a Scottish filmmaker friend who directed a film a few years ago with, with Eva Green and Ewan McGregor, and it grossed $2,900 in the U.S. Um, and you think, well, how is that possible? So um, I gave it a try. I released it in very, very small markets to begin with, and we started doing extremely well. Um, the, one of the first theaters was a 10-screen multiplex. We beat all nine Hollywood films we were up against and ended up in the position of having 15, uh, 1,600 admissions in a town of 15,000 people. And uh, we, you know, we've had various results like that. When we opened in Minneapolis at one of the landmark cinemas there, we had more admissions in our first week than the film with the top screen average in the entire United States that week. And the thing that I've done has been very different is, first of all, trying to concentrate where I knew we had a great audience, um, but also where you know every market I go into, every cinema, we do independent media campaign for we do extensive outreach into the community for. Um, and so it's not just here's the national media, for a, and which a small film is limited, and then just let's hope a few art houses around the country pick it up. And we're now in the position where, you know, it's the longest first-run theatrical release in the U.S. in over a decade for a movie, and uh, we've been in over 200 full-run theaters. The longest run in a single theater was 11 weeks. And... Um, about 450 venues in total between special events and other theaters and that sort of thing. I, I just think it's such a great part of this, this film's 
history is, lineage is what you're what you're talking about. And I love that's this whole show is about independent theater. I mean, independent filmmaking in these. Uh, documentaries and foreign films that are not generally considered to be mainstream and and who have a lot of backing behind them often sometimes they do sometimes they don't but generally it's such a tough slog and when you see fantastic films and i just i'm going to sort of recount what you said earlier you see these amazing narrative films that come out and they make yeah they make five thousand eight thousand fifteen thousand dollars in a theatrical run and it just breaks my heart yeah and there, there are two, well, there are two very prolific art house distributors in the U.S., IFC and uh, Kino Lorber. And, you know, well experienced. And in, you know, 2017 and 2018, between the two of them, they released 106 titles. And I've never distributed before, and I've already, before opening in Los Angeles, outperformed 99 of those 106. And. The key thing is just the, the amount of effort you can put in. I mean, they have skilled teams. They have much higher budgets than I have. But we just put in a ridiculous amount of work. And, you know, at the end of it, I mean, you know, between Minnesota, South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, Oregon, and Washington, we've been in about 120 cinemas. There's not a single film in years, if ever, from the likes of Fox Searchlight or Sony Picture Classics that's been in anywhere near that many cinemas. And... You know, if you prorated nationally what we've done in South Dakota, we would be about the 48th most successful film in the U.S. this year. And this is a film I shot with a crew of an average crew of two in 125 hours with, you know, over 18 days of, you know, 125 shooting hours over 18 days um, with a, a shoot budget of well under 30 grand with everyone paid. I mean, it's just, you know, when we've been, you know, the top performing film in a cinema or, this, you know, for months, there was one cinema we were in the 15 months they've had it. We were the second best performing film, beat every Marvel movie in that time. Uh, it's just extraordinary. It just shows that the audience is interested in something different. But why my film works for them is it's not an art house audience. It's quite a mainstream older audience. And it's a film that makes them laugh and cry. And it makes them feel like they've really been on a journey uh, in the way that maybe an older classical Hollywood movie might've done. And it's not like a cerebral movie that, um, is just trying to be all fancy and arty and, and leaves them cold. It's a film that a general audience, and the more general the better in a way almost, because, you know, a lot of the, you know, they're not analyzing the film, they're just accepting it and jumping into that world. And it's been fascinating. Have you, do you ever think about, have people approached you about kind of um, tutoring people, letting other filmmakers, sort of helping filmmakers? Because I know it's, it's after you've made a film, if you've gone through all the pro, uh, the process of, writing a, a script and putting a cast together and doing the film yeah. and edit, and then you get to the end and you're exhausted. I can imagine you, the last thing you want to do is go out and hustle for yourself. Yeah. Ha, is that part of the part of the issue that we're talking about here? Is that yeah, just a it's, fatigue? Yeah, it's a crazy amount of work. And actually, I, you know, just even at the film department at Alley City College yesterday, I gave a couple of long talks exactly about this. But... Um, you know, and it's interesting, there's been a couple of other films I know that have been following my release and trying to replicate it. There's another native film, Indian uh, Horse, which was a big hit in Canada that Clint Eastwood exec produced. And they've been mapping and trying to replicate my release. They were about, they've done about 25% of what we've done. They've been out about 10 months, so they've been, again, going with a long release strategy. Um, the problem is that marketing-wise, I think they're missing out on a lot of what we're doing. Um, 
and a, a similar film from uh, another film from the Midwest that could see how regional audiences work. But you know, I'm away to do. Um, soon, I'll be launching a Kickstarter for a very comprehensive masterclass series on no budget cinema that will go into far greater detail than anything okay. that's been done before okay. you know it'll be almost nauseating with the detail because that's what's needed you need literally the toolkit for every step of the way yeah. and um you know i have a most of my team that i've now got working for me are based in bulgaria it allows us to have a cost base that's where i live too and it gives us a cost base that allows us to do this if we were doing it in la it wouldn't be cost-effective. And um, because we've now created all these huge databases and all that kind of thing, we will start offering you know, certain services to other independent filmmakers looking to release themselves, which won't so much be about the booking side, but will be much more about marketing. the uh, marketing and outreach and media and all that sort of thing. Well, this is just fascinating, and I could go on and on, but the show's got to end at some point, and I want to thank you so very much. Thank you, first of all, for Neither Wolf Nor Dog, the, the film that we've been talking about, and for this uh, additional fascinating discussion about independent filmmaking and, and how uh, filmmakers can more effectively get their, their project, their, their, uh, the love of their life out in front of more people. And uh, Stephen Lewis Simpson, thank you so very much for spending some time here with us on Film School Radio. My great pleasure. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.